our job is not to decide is not to do certain things to make that God love us, but rather to simply open our eyes that everything, all people, regardless of their particular creed, are full of God. They're not they're already full of the Spirit. They're already full of Christ. And our job is to open our eyes to see that, not to tell them to get full of it. My mom turned 18 in the 1960s And she does remember Stonewall To be fair, she can't own a beer kid That the bricks launched at police Would compel me to exist And I think about that now down the ballot The ones I love and I don't know I voted for you. Oh, friends, welcome, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I am your host. And this is episode number one hundred and forty-nine, and it's my conversation with Joshua M. Casey. So, Joshua wrote a book called Tracking Desire, a memoirish walk through faith, failure, and finding God under my feet. Uh, the foreword of the book was written by our friend Steve Austin, who's been on the podcast before. Uh, we'll be making another stop by here over the summer. Uh, but who is Joshua Casey, you might be wondering? Well, if I flip to the back of the book, I have it right here in my hand, on the back cover, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, Joshua Casey lives with his family in Bloomington, Indiana, where he does the things most associated with bearded white men in their 30s, drinking craft beer, smoking his pipe, wearing cardigans, and hosting his podcast, which is called Drunk Church History. Uh, Really, really good stuff uh, in this episode. Joshua talks to us about his journey, faith, uh, some of the uh, bigger pieces of a spiritual journey uh, of deconstruction and reconstruction and rethinking and thinking and all the different types of things. And what I really appreciated about this book is Joshua takes a very unique approach in how he shares his story. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that approach in the episode. And I also felt like at times I was reading something that I've thought through a lot in my own life, but I found that the way Joshua talked about it really put words to feelings that I've had, but maybe haven't been able to fully express. And so at times it felt like I was sitting down with Joshua reading this book, like sitting down with him in a coffee shop, sharing with him my own questions, and then having him tell me how he's thought about those things, because the stuff he wrote about is stuff I'm thinking about on a regular basis. So what I'm trying to say is hit pause and go to Amazon and buy the book, for crying out loud, because it's really, really good. And I uh, I think it will speak to you in our really profound and really, really deep ways. Uh, special music today is by my friend Semler. If you haven't heard of Semler, uh, you are, you're missing out. Just go to Twitter and look, look up Semler. And then go to Apple Music and look up Semler and Spotify, wherever it is you listen to music. And uh, download the music because it's really, really good. Uh, the short story is that Semler put up uh, an album on iTunes. Uh, and labeled it as a Christian album. And it is a Christian album, right? But it, it's not that kind of Christian album. <laughs> it's really, uh, she's telling her story of deconstruction. And she's telling her story of her spiritual journey. And some of the, the lyrics are very, very thought-provoking. They're very, very deep. And if you've spent any time in a uh, evangelical church Anytime growing up and you've picked up any kind of baggage along the way, uh, this music will speak loudly to you. And a lot of people flocked to it because a lot of people felt like, wow, this really speaks to me. And a lot of people flocked to it because they really hated it because they would go on the, you know, the Christian section of iTunes thinking they're, oh, here's a brand new Christian album. And they go to listen to it, getting ready to know worship Jesus and they're hit with these lyrics and it's like whoa and so uh, it's really good stuff Uh, I really appreciate her work her music her voice her bravery her courage uh, to share her story in the way that she does she's out there on Twitter every day sharing stuff making noise and really really good 
really good person, really good things. And uh, I highly, highly suggest you go look her up on social media because you will not be sorry. A couple other things before we roll the tape. Uh, Patreon and buymeacoffee.com are two places to go to support the show financially. Patreon is tier-based. Every tier gets a reward. Buymeacoffee.com is more of a one-time contribution that you can make uh, if a particular episode, blog post, whatever, strikes your fancy, uh, strikes the, strums the chords of your heart and makes you think about things differently. Uh, Consider going over to those places to support the show. The Heretic Shop, I took it down. Took it down for a little while. I've paused the shop. Uh, Hoodies, t-shirts, all the different things. It sold some stuff here and there, but it costs like $30 a month to keep it open. And I have everything priced in there fairly low. Even though some people might think $38 for hoodie is extravagant, uh, it doesn't really make a whole lot. I mean, some some stuff makes like a dollar, maybe $2, $3. Then once you put shipping and everything into it, it's not really that much. And so it doesn't sell enough to justify paying $30 a month every month. Uh, Because to make $30, just to make it break even, I'd have to sell like 30 t-shirts. and (laughs) That's never happened. (laughs) It doesn't happen. Uh, So anyway, I have paused it for a little bit. Uh, I'll put it back up there probably into the summer, then maybe pause it again. Or I might go back to doing something different. I used to use a place called Bonfire, which is more like you make a t-shirt for a specific cause, and then you rally people to purchase the the t-shirt. Uh, for a cause and so I might do that and like just take whatever money I get and just donate it because it's free to make the shirts and use the service so I might just make a t-shirt for maybe like pride month and then everybody who buys a t-shirt the money that comes in I'll donate it to like the Trevor project or something like that I don't know I'm thinking about it I'm brainstorming it's in the brainstorming blueprint stages of how we can revamp the heretic shop but stay tuned it's there but it's not there it's visible, but it's invisible. If you go there, it'll say, we're here, but we're not here. <laughs> we'll be back again someday. So all of that to say, my friends, oh, wait a minute. Next week, next week, guys, it's episode 150 next week. Can you believe it? 150 episodes of the podcast. Uh, I will not tell you today. I will not tell you who next week's guest will be. Uh, you have to sit on the edge of your seat to find out. Uh, but I probably spent a little bit of time in the beginning this section, uh, maybe 10 minutes or so. I don't know, kind of re- just thinking through some of the, the things I've learned, uh, maybe some of the places, I don't know, what, I, what I'm thinking these days, where I'm at, kind of reflect on the last 150 episodes and things I've learned, things maybe I, I wish I would have done differently. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see, what, we'll see where the spirit blows on the day that I sit down to record the intro. But 150 episodes is huge. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for all of you who tune in every week. Share the show. Pass the show around. Uh, I love you. I appreciate you. And I'm grateful to be on this journey with you. But that's next week. Today is episode number 149. And it's my conversation with Joshua Casey. Let's roll the tape. Enjoy. Youth group lock-ins are a really strange concept that youth group leaders seem to really like. It's like, let's take some repressed hormonal teenagers and put them in church and hope they find Jesus overnight. Like Jesus is a ghost hiding in the church And if you just stay long enough you'll find him But in my experience The only thing you find Is your sexuality This one's for the kids Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast Today we're sitting down with my friend Joshua Casey Who wrote a book called Tracking Desire Subtitled A Memoirish Walk Through Faith, Failure, and Finding God Under My Feet. So Joshua, welcome to the podcast. I've been looking forward to this. Hey, thanks, Glenn, for having me. I'm, I've have been looking forward to it as well. Thank you. So before we get too far into our discussion, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Uh, what do you do? Some of the highlights of your journey. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, so the, I guess the, the Reader's Digest version of the, <laughs> of the journey is I was, you know, grew up as a pastor's kid and yeah. uh, actually, actually two pastors. My, uh, my birth father passed away when I was, when I was about seven. Hmm. And, um, 
And then when my mom remarried, the guy who raised me was, my, was a pastor as well. And um, mm. so I grew up in that context in an independent Christian church context and then went to Bible college, went to be and became a, a campus pastor. And I was that for eight, a little over eight years, really, really bad stuff, but some really great things as well. And kind mm. of over the course of time, uh, moved it, moved in a different direction and began to uh, and was actually confirmed into the Episcopal Church and was uh you know, on the road, essentially to becoming a priest. And then sort of after, just after a lot of the things I'd experienced, decided it was time to, to kind of be done, done with that particular aspect of, of my journey. And, um, currently I am a, uh, an assistant brewer for a local brewery. So, <laughs> so you went from, a, from the a, church, a, a to the sharp, sharp left turn. <laughs> You're right. For sure. Yeah, sharp, sharp left turn, but you know, his, historically connected to the monks, I guess. So we're exactly, good. exactly. Somehow it all ties together. So your book, uh, Tracking Desire, mm-hmm. if you had to kind of give us the elevator pitch for this book, uh, what's it about? Who's your target audience? So I'm always bad at the target audience question because I know that the, <laughs> like, the number one thing you're not supposed to say is everyone. And that's right. just, I, I, I guess, I, so the target audience is me first and foremost. From the womb to the tomb, um, I, everyone. I said, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> I, so my, my thing is that I, I wrote it for me first and foremost. I, mm-hmm. I was using it as sort of as a, sort of as, as therapy, as a way to um, uh, exercise a lot of my, my experiences and, and get them out. And that, that really helped, honestly. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm in a different place now that the book is, is out of me. Uh, you know, that I was, I was able to, there, there are a lot of giving birth metaphors that I feel as though I probably should not use <laughs> considering the fact that I'm a dude, but, right. but, but that's the, you know, the, the experience that I've tried to relate. Uh, so, so the, I guess you could say the elevator pitch is, is that this, this book is a story. It's, mm-hmm. it's a journey and it's not just mine. I interweave several other um, narratives throughout the midst of it. And it's all hung on the scaffolding of the church mm-hmm. here. Yep. And it essentially walks from being completely submerged in the church experience to, um, to as the subtitle says, finding God under my feet to beginning to, to see um, divinity in, in the most mundane and ordinary of things. And, and a lot of that leads me outside of the walls of the church. Yeah. Now the book you said is set up according to the church here. And I thought that was very interesting. At first I opened the book and I looked at the table of contents. I was like, what is this book? <laughs> it's very, just very interesting. <laughs> and it's like part one is yes. Advent, part two, Christmas, part three, Epiphany, part four, Holy Lent, part five, Holy Week, part six, Easter, part seven, Pentecost, part eight, Ordinary Time. Did you come up with this idea to set up like your, like, was this your idea? Did someone kind of push you in this direction? Like, how did you come up with this idea to use the church calendar to set up the story of your, of your life? All right. So as I was writing these stories for my own story, I would then occasionally take a break and I would, you know, jot something down about a particular time in the church calendar, Mm. uh, particularly Lent because I'm a, I'm a sad person. Um, (laughs) so I'm a, for, for those, as I always joke at my wife, for those who like Christian astrology, I'm a four on the Enneagram. So I like sadness. (laughs) Um, and, and so I would, you know, write something about Lent and then see some of the resonances between, you know, whatever part of my story I was in with Mm -hmm. that. And so I just began to see more and more of those and, then just and then I got really excited about it and I was like, okay, now has anyone else done this? Because I don't want to say like this was my idea and then there's like 16 books about like it. Like Richard but... Rohr did it, or right? Something. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't see anything else structured that way. So at, at least in in my limited experience, I didn't see anything. So what I thought we could do is maybe drill down into a couple of the bigger um, topics that you tackle in your story, and I, I wanted to maybe pick your brain about a few things that really stuck out at me. Uh, but first mm-hmm. thing I want to toss out there is you, you talk early in the book about being, um, I think, at a conference where the, the preacher was like pressing really hard for an altar call. I think it was like, yes. really like a teenager and uh, to get like a bunch of kids to come forward, give their lives to Christ. Then you have this interesting thing that you say, you say for that conference speaker, the way to show preference for God was to desire the far off country of heaven more than this broken but present one to believe so deeply in the fabulous cash and prizes of the hereafter as to render the here and now impoverished. What if the other deeper, more real reality were not off somewhere else, but here just under the surface waiting for us to actually see it. Uh, This grabbed me because I was raised in that very conservative evangelical world. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk to me more about this because 
like Western Christianity obviously has this obsession with the, with the afterlife, you know, heaven, <laughs> hell, the rapture, the end times. Um, and when I ran in that world, like I said, it was very easy to get caught up in that so much so that you completely miss what's going on today. So maybe talk to us about kind of the evolution of your thoughts um, regarding these things, the hereafter versus the here, the here and now. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so, so I, I think one of the big changes for me has come to understand what it means for uh, when G- Jesus, for instance, says to to believe, and that that kind of that there's this. Um, I think that we were we were taught uh, those of us in, in similar traditions to mine were taught that we to to believe in God there like to to be with God means we have to believe in God which has something to do with arranging our mental furniture correctly mm-hmm. and what that allows us to do is that intellectual ascent allows us to then be with God forever what whatever that means and and somehow it's going to be bigger and better than anything we can imagine also it's going to be all these things that are exactly like we can imagine and somehow you know and so you get this conflicting message mm-hmm. essentially forsake this world in order to get to that one and that this world is literally going to burn. It's all kindling for Armageddon. And so we just got it. We just have to get there. But, but in reality, you know, coming to, I came to, to see that, you know, for instance, when, when Christ does, oh my goodness, dog killing me. It's all um, good. <laughs> when, uh, when Christ tells us to, to believe that there's something much deeper going on there and that it's, it's, it's much bigger than individual um, assenting individual, individual doctrines and assenting to things that in fact it is, um, it is, entering into a new kind of a new way of being a new way of, of walking. And, and that may or may not have anything to do with, with anything close to the Christian faith. Um, that in reality, it's, it's a new way of, of interacting with the world and, um, you're believing into something and it's a path. And so, so when I, I read things like, or I experience things like that, that, um, preacher was, was doing in that Mm -hmm. moment, he is trying to move us from our preoccupate what he would say is a preoccupation with with the here and now into a total occupation with things to come yeah um and and what that happens is is we completely evacuate our responsibility and our enjoyment of the world like the actual world that christians proclaim christ came to be part of i think that's really good i think that word believe has a lot of a lot of baggage tied into it. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of times it causes us to your point to miss, I think the greater point of the work of Christ and really the, the gospel message and the good news being for the whole world here and now, mm-hmm. not some, some later place. I've had a, who was it? Doug Padgett. I'm sure you've heard of Doug Padgett. Um, mm-hmm. He was on the podcast a while ago. He wrote a book uh, kind of on the, the miracles of Jesus and the gospel of John. He brought up this really interesting point that, in, in Greek, there's a, he said, there's a noun and there's a verb for the word believe. Yes. And John only uses the verb, meaning it's very action oriented. It's not like, you know, John 3.16 is like the classic verse for God's love of the world. He gave his only son over believes in him. We often think mm-hmm. of this mental construct of having the right theologies, doctrines. He says, no, he says, John is talking about the verb. Uh, meaning it's an action. It's what, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Are, are you, are you aligning your life? with the work of Christ or are you just mentally believing it in your head? I think that's, that's huge. Yeah. Huge. And, and John's, John's gospel in particular is really good. Or like, I think that it is prime uh, territory for that kind of discussion. And, and, you know, okay. So, and, and you can make, uh, I have found that you can make Augustine say whatever you want him to say um, <laughs> of course. in general, in general, I'm not a huge fan of him, but there's this great uh, tradition of him discussing the creeds mm-hmm. Um and, and like that there are essentially three different ways of, of what that first word, you know, I believe in me like means. And so you can, the ones like crudere and deum, crudere in day, different ways of saying like, I believe in a general deity. I believe, you know, I believe in the Christian God. And then eventually I believe into God mm-hmm. and that there's this intellectual movement that, that then moves down into your hands and feet. And I think one of the things that, we were many of us were you know hit over the heads with a bunch and, and i truly do believe it was out of love it was out of a desire sure. to, to do good but yeah. what we were told was that god wants to love us but can't because mm-hmm. until we agree that we were bad enough that god had to die in order to to make us god had to kill his own son in order to make us um able to accept the love that we functionally cannot accept the love that god wants to give us but hasn't given us yet 
because of these of this thing. And and in reality, what I'm saying is that what I and what I you know have have come to believe is that to to and I, I believe I mean to live into to walk mm-hmm. into is this uh, that that God. I mean that whatever whatever God is, if there is a God at all, <laughs> that um, this place was then created out of love and it's full of God's presence and and therefore our job is not to decide is not to do certain things to make that God love us, but rather to simply open our eyes that everything, all people, regardless of their particular creed, are um, are full of God. They're not they're already full of the spirit. They're already full of Christ. And our job is to open our eyes to see that, not to tell them to get full of it. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, and I've, I've said this a lot on the podcast before, but like all that stuff came to head for me when my daughter was born. Mm-hmm. And I remember she went into the NICU and I was sitting in the NICU with her, which is me and her, nobody else. And my hand was in the tank and she took her little hand and wrapped it around my finger. Hmm. I remember having this crisis of faith, like, wait a minute, there is no possible way that this child can be marked with some kind of sin nature that she's mm-hmm. like repulsive to God because this is my child. And like, essentially we're all God's children. So how in the world can we be that (laughs) repulsive to the father? Am I, I must be a much better parent (laughs) than God. Right. Right. And I remember like, it just like all this theology started to crumble in my head because it just didn't make any sense to me anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting. I I have three kids and, and uh, I would love, you know, definitely have come to well see easily see God in them. Yeah. Uh, for me though, even before I had kids, my entry into that, my entry point into that, the beginnings of that thought process have definitely were, uh, was nature. And I, and I come back to that a lot in the book, um, particularly like in the, in the introduction, I start off there really strongly with this experience in Ireland that I had where, um, coming to see like the, the play I've never, ever felt deeply connected to God within church. I've, I've felt at home in church in various mm-hmm. ways, but my connections have always come outside of the church. And so it's, it's not super surprising that yeah. we kind of move that way. And so for me, it's, it's going, okay. So like, I, I, I see the marks of divinity on here and it's got to be more than just like the afterbrush of God. It's got to be that there's actually something infused within it. And, uh, and, and that, that desire to, to commune with that, you know, then led me to, uh, particularly in my my later years in ministry, really focus on the concept and, and the um, experience of the Eucharist yep. for my for my students in sure. campus ministry. Sure. And and coming to understand that it was like it was practice. It was essentially teaching us how do, how do you see how can you come to see divinity in something as as mundane as bread and wine? Because once you can do that, then it should be pretty pretty uh, easy to see see divinity in the people around you. Right. Yeah. And the world around you and treat it as such. Yeah. Like when you start to see the Eucharist, even like the foot washing and stuff like that is like a uh-huh. symbol of oneness, as opposed to all drenched in the language of like atonement and sin mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It changes the game for everything. Yeah, know? for sure. So you talk about, um, on page 37 about what you call your awakening to your spiritual tradition. And you talk mm. about how it was kind of slow. You say very jarring, and uh, fraught with moments where you ought to have spoken up, but remained silent. I was wondering if you could talk to me more about, about that. Like, how were your eyes opened to the reality of your, your roots? Why was that jarring? What are things that you think you should have spoken up about that you didn't? Take us into that a little bit. <laughs> with your dog. With my dog, yes, yes, with my puppy. Obviously, your puppy has our, things to our, add. Yes, our, uh, our pandemic puppy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so, okay. So I guess a, qu- a question for, for you before I, I answer that. So did you grow up in a, a pretty strongly named denomination or do, or was it more of kind of like my experience of it being in, in a uh, kind of congregationalist, we would call a non-denominational uh, context? Yeah, it was back and forth. Like I, I went to a, a private Christian school that was part of a non-denominational evangelical church. I mean, it, for our town, it was considered like a, a mega church, even though it's mm-hmm. not like that much of a mega church, but it was really big for our town. Um, and then I, I went to, to college in like a CMA Christian missionary Alliance, um, mm-hmm. Bible college. And then I was, did my internships and I pastored in a reformed church. So uh, mm-hmm. I was kind of all over the place, but I think my, my major experience was probably like in the context of CMA slash, uh, reformed, like that kind of area. Yeah. 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 
and, and so you know some some of these some of these traditions are very clear right from the beginning this is who we are this is where we've come from <laughs> yeah it's true and then and then some of them like the one that i grew up in are it it depends on who you talk to and who you're around so there are some people that went to so the you know the without i so i love history so <laughs> without without boring people too much like my my the the independent christian churches they're also known as the the restoration movement or the mm. stone stone campbell tradition um it comes from that early 19th century um second great awakening kind of frontier revivalism all these all these different historical terms that are thrown out there but like the, trying to to pin down this this period of religious fervor Mm. that spawned a bunch of what we would consider the non-denominational churches and you you see that lead right into the modern evangelical religious right type churches so like they're not all the same but they all have this very similar root to them yeah and so a lot of the things that we consider as normal in the evangelical (laughs) church in general this day these days are directly related to the spawning of those churches in that time in those places Mm. so so that that's that is huge. And so for me, I was not aware of that for a long time. Mm. I, I simply did not know. I, it was just, it was just church. Right. And so my friend, like I had a really good friend that went to a Catholic church. And like, to me, that was, this is a whole tradition that has, has all these roots that go back and you have these, you know, you can, you can follow it simply just by learning the names of the popes or something. You can see kind of the movement of the church and, and know that it goes back and they claim it to go all the way back to Peter. Yeah. And so, you can see that I had, I had another friend that, uh, was a charismatic that went to a, a um, Pentecostal church and like, he didn't know anything about it either. Later on, mm. I go, Oh yeah. Like you're part of the Azusa street revival. And there's this very American flavor to this. And so there's all these things that I learned about as far as how these movements began. And I, I just didn't know that growing up. Like we yeah. it literally just said Christian church on the sign. Mm. And so, so it didn't have a, tradition related to it and it depends where you are in those in traditions like mine on how much they know so some some preachers some elders or whomever leaders in the church will know tons about where they come from as a, as a movement others mm-hmm. of them have no idea and they they could easily but jump between you know a a, a baptist a methodist and a um christian church or churches of christ or whatever w- without batting an eye yeah and, and so for the, so that was, people just didn't tell me, I, I never had this, like, this is who we are and where we come from moment until I began to actually sit down and learn the history of it. And in so doing, I began to see the roots of a lot of the things that we taught, the roots yeah. of a lot of the practices that we participated in. And I realized how, how, um, young a lot of this stuff was. Yeah. And, and one of the things about that was that I, I began to realize that, uh, well, actually these, these, these things that, that we say are, that we say, or we just act like and think are so important, so integral to who we are as Christians, period, not, not as Christian church members, but as Christians, yeah. um, are actually really new or really idiosyncratic. And, and so, you just start going, okay, so maybe, maybe this isn't all there is. It, it seems a little myopic to say that we're trying to be, we're trying to restore the early church as though the, the intervening 800 years, um, <laughs> right. you know, or 1200 years, I guess it, I mean, didn't matter. Right. right like, right. <laughs> and especially when you do love history, like I did, I mean, I'm reading about all these things that happened and I'm going, wait, none of this matters. Why, yeah. why does this not matter? Yeah. It's, that's so true. Yeah, and so then you start digging in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so yeah I think, start digging in. I was going to say on that note, I was thinking for me, just thinking about my own life, like I haven't really done a lot of digging into like my, like my denominations or anything like that, but I've been doing a lot of reading on early Christianity mm-hmm. and uh, just reading like a lot of Bart Ehrman, uh, yes. a lot of like Marcus Borg, John Dominic Crossan, mm-hmm. and like a lot of stuff about the Gnostic gospels and some of these earlier branches of Christianity that were deemed heretical in a sense because <laughs> people in power said they weren't they weren't normal and yep. that's been that's been really jarring to me to borrow your word and it's been causing me and like stirring in me desire to say to say a lot because like christianity has become so narrow and so mm-hmm. closed off when in reality like at one time in history it was actually very broad and it made a a lot of room for like a lot of different ideas and people and i almost find myself being jarred angry because like i didn't know any of this <laughs> like you know i was like right, how, yes. how could i have gone through all of this school <laughs> went through four years of bible college you know three years of master's doctoral program 
all this stuff and I haven't learned this stuff. Like, what, 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 <laughs> where is it? Where has this all been my whole life? You know, it's, it's so jarring to use that word. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. And, and you know, the, the, this idea that like we, our tradition sort of materialized out of thin air or, or, you know, or the, hub- <laughs> the hubris that I experienced of, of, well, we, we can, number one, we want, we should want to, which I disagree with, but we should want to resurrect the early church mm. and we can do that. And we can somehow keep a purity of, of, because again, your intellectual side matters the most. So we can keep this purity of intellect of, of, of the faith transmitted to us without the, the, like our lenses being, um, changed over the, the, those intervening years. It's just, it's not possible. Like your history affects you even if you don't know it. So you may as well know it. So you can see some ways that it affects you. And and you're exactly right. Like the, the influence of power is present almost immediately. Um, even before Constantine, you know, really makes Christianity have some social panache, like even before that moment you see it, but then especially after that, I mean, it, it really is like you're saying, you know, you read the Gnostic gospels, you look at some of the, the Nestorian churches, the Arian churches, you look at the Eastern, the various Eastern, um, other Eastern branches, yeah. you, you see all the, or even in, in, to my spe- special interest, um, the Celtic churches, mm. like you see all these places and the ways that they, they had these very different ways of, of understanding faith, yeah. of understanding this particular faith. And they practiced it differently. And for the most part, it was okay because why nobody else knew yeah. like they are over here doing this. They're trying to live out their understanding of the work of Christ in their lives and in the lives of their community. And it was fine. Yeah, it was, it was whenever you had to, you know, try to try to enforce uniformity on all this, that things began to really, you know, you squeeze your fist and things start slipping through. Yeah, that's so good. So what advice do you have then as someone who has experienced this jarring feeling? Like what what advice do you have for the person who they're digging into their <laughs> own traditions, they're digging into even early Christianity and they're like, holy smokes, like there's just so much stuff here that I didn't know. And mm-hmm. like the history is not as as beautiful as maybe I thought it was. Like there's a lot of things in history that just aren't good. Like what's your advice to the person who's kind of digging through that kind of stuff and yet trying to maintain or hold some resemblance of faith inside of them mm. as they wrestle with all that? You know, it's funny because I, I think kind of where I land near the end of the book and, and where I my thoughts, where my thought is taking me mm. in, in the direction of my next project is is really away from any any smack of institutionalism at all. Yeah. Uh, and so, because, but that's because I, I've, I have seen all that stuff and I'm like, I just, I just can't, you know, the, the millennial, I can't even anymore. It just, <laughs> right. you know, I can't even, yeah, right. but, but at the same time, if somebody does interact with this and say, yeah, but I still want to be part of this in some way, I still mm-hmm. feel the need to specifically, not just to love Jesus, but to specifically be part of a worshiping community that meets in the same place at relatively the same time every <laughs> week. And that I know that like, after I die, other people will still be doing the same thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if that, if that is a tradition, if that is a thing that you want to be part of, then I think one of the first things you have to do is reconcile yourself to the influence of power mm-hmm. on, on your faith tradition and just recognize that's just there. It, it just, it is, you can't yeah. do anything about it. It's just there. It has been, it always, always has been, um, and as long as you're trying to be part of of an organized group that wants mm-hmm. to sustain itself, you will continue to be part of that. Um, you know, we we have, as you mentioned, like we have the faith we have because this was the one that won out. Yep. And you can look at that from one perspective. And I think the one that maybe you and I or definitely me grew up with was we grew up being told, well, this, we believe the things we do because the spirit was guiding us and all these other, all these other inferior (laughs) versions of faith were like pushed away by the spirit. And it's like, okay. Or maybe this version had the better armies. You could go either way, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, or they had, they had more eloquent speakers, you know, whomever, or more well-connected speakers or, um, so my, I mean, this, I don't know if it's very good advice, but it's, Mm. it's essentially a lot, like just, you're going to have to be okay with the fact that power and the pursuit of power and the use of power is is shot through all of this. Yeah, I think that's true. I think just having a sense of awareness that the power is there, I think mm-hmm. is doesn't 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 have to be. It doesn't have to taint your faith. It doesn't right. have to you know take away from anything that you believe. But just recognizing that it was there, I think, opens up to the the idea that there were also other people then who were there who got pushed out because of the power, uh-huh. and that perhaps it's. Perhaps it would be helpful to even look to see what those other groups that were pushed away 
believe just because it mm-hmm. might make, might enhance your own faith in, in different ways. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. That's what I'm finding anyway, because a lot of people, like, especially from my older tribe, my the tribe I used to be part of will say, you know, like, oh, you're studying, you're looking at the Gnostic gospels, like you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're going to be converting to some, you know, demon, <laughs> demon theology. I'm like, no, no, I think, I think it's just, it's just interesting to see what these other groups believe, because there's some things that really resonate with me. And there's other things I'm like, that's really far out there. That's weird. <laughs> I don't think I'm yeah, going to align myself with that at all, but there's other things that are really helpful that I think, oh, like, wow, this is actually really deeply insightful. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So you talk in the Advent piece of the book about looking for Christ in uh, everyday life and how, when we do that, we'll find him in more places than we ever uh, imagined. So I'm wondering, what does it look like for you, uh, Joshua, on a regular basis to look for Christ in your, in your everyday life? And how has that very intentional activity kind of enhanced your, your faith journey? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, so I've, <laughs> I, uh, I am, I've tried doing that as like, as a practice of meditation, for instance, mm. and, I always say I'm not good at meditation, which shows that I don't understand meditation. <laughs> right. That's like but, the first thing you're not supposed to say. That's what they right. say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I've done it before. And it really is a, a, you know, that sort of intentional sitting in awareness, which I would say is, is, uh, you know, really what prayer, when we talk about prayer is trying to get at, but sure. I just, I have, I have struggled to find a practice of that, particularly, as we said, with three kids all in elementary school that are, you know, trying, trying <laughs> to find that it just doesn't work. Yep. Uh, so maybe some other time in my life, I'll be able to, to pursue something like that. And so for <laughs> me, it's been sort of creating, I, I try to create little reminders and mm-hmm. that, and, and that is a lot of times, again, how I describe church and the things we do at church, for instance, the Eucharist, it's just a bunch of reminders. We, we gather together to be reminded that actually the real, the real, um, story, the real, the real thing we're involved in is out there, not in here. Yeah. And the moment the church stops being a reminder and starts being the place where you come for this thing to happen, yep. that's, that's, that's when the, the switch is, is flipped and things go badly. And yeah. so for me, I, I have created just a series of whether it's, it's notes posted somewhere or whether it is, um, you know, particular things that I listen to at various times of the week, mm-hmm. or, you know, for me, as I mentioned, being in nature, going out on walks consistently. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I, I until recently was driving a lot for a previous job. And so <laughs> I, uh, I was listening to a lot of podcasts, but I had yep. to, I had to purposefully set aside time or, or music or whatever, set aside time where I chose not to listen to anything because I had to remind myself to be aware of what was going on. Yeah. Um, and that was, I mean, so it's just simple for me, it was just cultivating awareness. And mm. I think that looks different for everyone. Yeah. For me, what, what, what it was for me is we, we haven't been to church in like, I don't know, it's been like three years since we mm-hmm. went to church and uh, growing up, like I just, God was in the church and God was in the Bible. <laughs> Those yes. are like the two places where you heard from God, you saw God, you experienced God. And so not having gone to church now for three years, and then I went through like a six month period uh, where I didn't read my Bible. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, like I need to figure out like, can God be experienced outside of these two these two because <laughs> yep. up until now the answer has been no but i i have to experiment with this myself and like as i it was it was weird at first like to not have any interaction with my bible while not having an interaction at church but like as i started to really like you said be intentional with trying to find like experience god talk to god in nature like i you know i love working outside like mowing the lawn we have a pretty mm-hmm. big yard we, we bought a house that needed like a lot of work outside so i've been doing like a lot of that kind of stuff uh we live on a kind of cul-de-sacs like walk with our daughter and say hi to neighbors and stuff like i started to see god like in other places and i began to realize like i actually feel a closer connection to god in these places than i really did in these other two places that i was taught that god only existed but right. then once i started i haven't we haven't gone back to church yet but like i've picked up my Bible again over the last year and I've been reading, reading it. And like, I just feel like I sense God all the more after I've realized that God can be found in other places than just there. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I think yeah. that's really, really important because I think, I think it, it just broadens your perspective of the divine. Really. It does. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, we haven't been to, to church in a while either. Our, um, we were really, <laughs> right about the time the pandemic um, hit in was about the time that we kind of stopped going anyway. Hmm. And it's interesting because my, my wife is actually, who's just an extremely strong personality, strong leader type. She, Hmm. 
um, was asked to actually be part of some of the leadership of the, so it's called the vestry of the Episcopal, of our Episcopal parish. Um, So she's part of that. And like, I have virtually no interest, Um, (laughs) but at the same time, it's been interesting to walk through some of that with her and to, to not, you know, for me and uh, trying to, trying to find the right way to phrase this. So when talking about the, the Bible, for instance, and, and mm-hmm. the way that it impacts me, because I don't have that touchstone anymore of, of coming to church and hearing it all the time, or, you know, and I, I long, long ago gave up the whole, you know, reading on a consistent basis thing. Your morning devotions. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, uh, and what's funny though, is that I, because of just my own, my own weird and my own weird mind and remembering things that I read really well. And, um, you and and then like growing up again, just completely submerged in that culture. That those words, those stories, those phrases, and and snatches of verses, and sometimes entire like long sections of things are just there. Yeah. Like they're just they're just right there under my subconscious, ready to pop up for something. And so that is in a lot of ways, I I, I use it as a parallel to people living maybe in ancient Greece, kind of late late high grecian empire times before the romans basically like these these gods and goddesses and these stories are just ingrained in your psyche Mm. they may or may not depending on the person have any actual valence for the um for for the person themselves as far as what they believe but Mm. they're there and they they shade everything you do and the way that you talk the words you pick and they everything and that is that is what the bible is for me that is what the stories of this faith are Mm. they they are the stories through which i view the world It, it is the lens and the vocabulary that i reach for um and i don't think that's a bad thing and so so for me it's like i almost don't even have to read the bible anymore because it was just i mean it was just ingrained deeply in me both from outside sources and from my own choices as a youth yeah and so like i i almost don't have to be connected with it anymore because the words are are there ready for me um it's like written on your written on your heart yeah it's, <laughs> right? it's almost like that was somewhere yeah <laughs> yeah somebody said that somewhere i don't Some, remember where yeah. but yeah <laughs> might be that book that big book right oh yeah yeah that one so one of the other questions <laughs> i want to ask you um and we can kind of maybe uh close with this one is use yeah. the word uh, the phrase cosmic Christ um, mm-hmm. in the book a couple of times. And that's a, I feel like it's a buzz phrase these days. Yes. <laughs> um, Richard Rohr kind of, I don't know, he didn't necessarily coin it, but I think people really latched onto it when he started to use it a lot. Um, he mm-hmm. wrote that book, the universal Christ. Um, but how do you understand that phrase? Like if you could give that some context for us, like what, what does the universal Christ refer to? Because I think we, you know, for me growing up, I always thought Jesus Christ, Christ was like his last name. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. Obviously it's much, much bigger than that. So maybe Jesus, take us to that a little bit. <laughs> Jesus H Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because I, you bring up roar. I, I really like a lot of the stuff that he has done, but mm. I, it, I haven't, it's, I have a lot of friends who are really, or have been really into roar. And I'm like, I mean, you know, it's, he's cool. He's a good he's guy. All right. I think, he's yeah. All right. He's, he's a good guy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, maybe when he, I'm, I always joke that I only read dead authors. So maybe when he dies, I'll, I'll really read all this stuff, but deeper appreciation um, for him. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, to me, the, uh, the concept, the idea of the cosmic Christ is this idea that there is that the, there is this this force, this power, this this thing that drives the interaction of the ineffable with the I don't know effable. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, it, it drives the it drives the the interaction between the divine and the mortal and and mm. the created and and it's the it's the interface. So in a lot of ways, uh, the the Christ is there is the um, is the touch point. So uh, you know, the Celts have this concept of thin places. Mm. And, you know, it's they believed in actual locations or moments um, yeah. or things you could do that would thin the veil between uh, between, you know, the the ineffable, the the divine, the um, eternal and themselves. Mm. And I think that the, the, the in a sense, if you if you really want to use like Trinitarian terms for this, like the uh, you know, the spirit could be is, is like the veil and. Um, it's only thick because we make it that way because, you know, in a sense, like we're thick, like we're thick headed. Um, the, the spirit is, is always there as this medium through which we interact. And the Christ is the, is the thing that we're interacting with. The Christ is created, is, is 
the created aspect of divinity mm. is the the form that we interact with um and so you know when i'm living and, I, and it's interesting i spent this last year really working on like personal body image and mm. um and i've been trying to see it's re- you know i've gotten better at seeing the christ in the rest of the world but i still really struggle at seeing <laughs> the christ in myself and so like yeah. how do i see this this thing that is everywhere anything that is created is this is part of is is filled with is saturated by is made of you know this this christ and and mm. you know we understand that matter is is energy essentially holding a particular form and and so it's this it's this energy that we are are all made of and part of and interacting with and and so if everything else is maybe i am too and and so this this idea of the universal christ being that anywhere you look you are interacting with seeing and and Mm. participating in the movement of the christ um and and that what jesus was was a a particular a particular location of that that we came to see it especially clearly in and, so, and, so the christ yeah. kind of like took up residence in the person of jesus all the more clearly for us to see it yeah moved into yeah. the neighborhood isn't that what yeah. uh, peterson says in the something like yeah, that the message version yeah it's like and it's not that the christ wasn't in the neighborhood the christ is the neighborhood it's just that we finally noticed it in some way right. like, it was, it was so it. bright like the lights were so bright on this guy that you can't not notice it yeah and and so you know that's why we're told that you know why paul says there whoever it was maybe it was hebrews the first of many brothers right and so like yeah. and sisters that we are the we are that he christ the, this jesus of nazareth character whatever to whatever degree his stories that we have of him are real was this real touchstone um you know of this like ultra distilled version of the christ that people were just it was so loud it was impossible to hear or to not hear that's so good so good love it man well listen we're just about out of time i got a clock back in for work in (laughs) uh, in a couple minutes but this has been a lot of fun i appreciate you taking the time for me uh i appreciate your book it was a really great great read i'm gonna put it in the show notes and where can people go to find you online yeah, uh, so you can buy Tracking Desire, a memoir-ish walk through <laughs> faith, failure, and finding God under my feet on Amazon. Uh, you can buy it on Kindle or on paperback. And eventually I'll have an audio book sometime this year. Uh, and Are you going to read it? Yes, yes, I will be reading it. Nice. All right. And, and as, a, as a little note to people who, may, who haven't read it, it um, it's full of footnotes in which I basically mm-hmm. just make fun of myself the whole time. You do. Uh, they're very sarcastic, too. Yes. Which I appreciate. <laughs> um, you know, because like you're, you're writing a memoir and you're like, I'm a 34 year old white dude with a beard. Like nobody right. really cares. So you should. There's the like, memoir. You know, there it is. That's it. Yeah, exactly. That. Yeah. So like you got to make fun of it. You got to take yourself a little less seriously. So they're yeah. all in there and that's, that's fun. Um, so that'll be fun, especially whenever I, I do the audiobook. So you can find that on Amazon. I write other things. I'm, I'm kind of starting a new series on why we can't reform the church. Okay. Um, releasing blogs about every, every week right now, as I kind of mm-hmm. work towards crafting those into a larger project on joshuamkc.com. Okay. And then I have a podcast because again, I'm a white dude with a beard in my thirties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's, that's the thing. Uh, and it's drunk church history. And we, this year are sure we have one episode out so far in this new season in which we are going to be cataloging the history of, of Christian sexual ethics. Nice. So our, yeah. So our first episode was about the high Roman empire, like the context that the church kind of came into. Okay. The next episode we're interviewing and and discussing this, uh, the Jewish aspect of that with a a rabbinic studies uh, teacher from Yale. Um, And then we will have um, several really uh, great guests coming up um, that uh, I'm just, I'm super, I am super stoked about this. And you can tell I'm a millennial because I just use the word stoked. So yeah, that's, that's all coming up. We've, we've got one episode of that already out and more of that will be coming at drunk church history. Awesome. I'll put all the links in the show notes and let's not do this again sometime. Sounds great, Glenn. I appreciate it, man. All right, man. When I retire, I will simply write a short story for my revenge about this town, these people, these gamblers. First song I learned spoke of Bethlehem. So is that prophecy? Or is that brainwashing? Cause no one ever pitched the Greek gods, and I don't know why not. I think that Athena'd understand me. But my chips have fallen. My Messiah came calling, but what if he'd not? 
would my soul just dry? What would I give for just an inch of your peace? Cause I want to fall, but I got bruises on my knees. What would I give for just an inch of your peace? Cause I want to fall. Wanna be someone that you'd call My dad's never cursed in his life I asked if he smoked, he said twice Well, by that standard, I'm a goddamn failure I passed blunts the day I married my wife but I'm a child of God, just in case you forgot And you cast me out every single chance that you got And that's your loss, not mine I'll be better than fine You just missed your shot to meet the unholy divine I'm saying, fuck a savior And if she can't take it, then she's small I'm gonna ask a lot of questions Because I'm giving this my all You know the people preaching now well, They've been putting us through shit And if you don't sanction that Then why are you rewarding it? You know the mission trips are scams They do more harm than good We got fame-hungry pastors Making bank in Hollywood I'm more confused than I've been And I don't think this will pass And I'm saying your name When I think the plane will crash What I'd give I wanna fall, but I got bruises on my knees. Oh, it I'd give for just an inch of your peace. Cause I wanna fall, I wanna be someone that you'd call. What I'd give just an inch of your peace Cause I wanna fall but I got bruises on my knees What I'd give for just an inch of your peace Cause I wanna fall I wanna be someone that you'd call